Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Clayton Johnson to talk about sow mortality. How are you doing today, Clayton? I'm doing great, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this topic just because it's there's just so many ways you can go with it, but I think we're going to bring some real value to listeners today with it. But before we jump into that, for those of you who, at least for those of listeners who don't know who you are, could you please do a little bit of a background and what you do today and also how you got involved in the swine industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so background and how I got involved in the swine industry are kind of the same story. Uh, my dad is a mixed animal veterinarian, Matthew, uh, in West Central Illinois, where I grew up, still practices. Um, he's been in practice for 40, oh, I think it's like 43 years now, something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and classic small town mixed animal veterinarian, um, you know, sees a little bit of everything. When I was a kid, Matthew, um, I grew up in an area where the it was very common to have small diversified farm. So the, the classic farm set up in West Central Illinois was you had, you know, a handful of pigs, you had a handful of cows, cow-calf operation, you had a little bit of farm to, a little bit of ground to farm. And I would jump in the truck with dad any chance I got to go do farm calls. And his kind of normal schedule was he'd do farm calls during the day. Then he'd come back to the clinic late afternoon and, you know, see small animal appointments. And then they were open every night and every weekend for the remainder of the small animal stuff and the spays and neuters and all that. Um, I got to see from that that mixed animal practice is a is a challenging lifestyle. Um, I mean, my dad was anything and everything to his clients, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, available was what he always was. And I'm, I'm not kidding you when I say his clinic was open four nights a week. So it was open every night except for Thursday from 8 to 10. Open all day, obviously, every day. It was open all day on Saturday, and it was open a half day on Sunday. And so um, I got exposure to mixed animal, but I, I saw that it was, it, was, uh, it was challenging from a time management standpoint. Uh, I did get a lot of exposure to swine farms through that. We never owned our own pigs. We didn't, we didn't have a, a farm or anything ourselves, but dad always knew the pig producers who needed help in, in the county. And pigs, as you know, are labor intensive. Um, and there weren't a lot of people that wanted to do that work, just, just kind of like today. Um, and uh, when I was real little, a lot of the swine vet work was technician type work. It was, it was procedures. So dad would vaccinate and castrate pigs in dirt lots. I can still remember, you know, doing that a lot. And when I was, as soon as well, they were probably 60 to 90 pounds, weren't they? We did them a little smaller. I would say um, 20 to 30 pounds was probably okay. the, the most common type average because they were they were small enough you could pick them up and hold them, but it was a chore to pick them up and hold them. Okay. So as soon as I was big enough to be the holder, that was like my full-time job on Saturdays <laughs> and Sundays so I would go down and hold pigs. And between that and snaring sows for the pseudo-rabies bleeding, their pseudo-rabies eradication was going on. 
um, I got a lot of exposure to pig farms. And then that just kept multiplying. Like I said, dad always knew people who wanted help. And so as I got old enough that they would actually hire me onto their farms, um, you know, in the morning on say weekends or, or holidays or summer, dad would drop me off at a farm in the morning before he went to work. And uh, I would work at that pig farm throughout the day doing processing, you know, whatever it was. Um, and then uh, dad would come pick me up at that farm when he got done with work. And so that's that's my introduction to the pig industry. I uh, went to vet school at the University of Illinois and kind of knew I wanted to be a pig veterinarian from the get-go. Um, got to do an internship with uh, the Mashoffs um, in 2005, and that internship was hugely influential on my career. Um, made huge uh, uh, relationships there at the Mashoffs and really, really enjoyed the not only the, the company, but the family in general. Um, and then when I graduated from the University of Illinois, I got a chance to go back there and work for the Mashoffs full time as a pig veterinarian. Um, did that for eight amazing years uh, and then got the opportunity to move to private practice with Carthage Vet Service seven years ago now. And that's where I find myself today is a swine veterinarian at Carthage Vet Service. It's funny, we've been doing swine tech for about seven years. So ever since uh, we've been doing that, I've just always associated you with the, the Carthage Vet Clinic. And it makes sense now that it lines up that well. <laughs> yep, I'm I'm an Illinois guy, uh, born and raised. Never never worked anywhere else. I haven't made it very far in life. So, what is uh? Do you have a favorite memory in your background in pig production? Anything in your career that stands out where you're like that was that was amazing? Um, well, as goofy as it sounds, one of one of my um, one of my memories. I don't know if it's a favorite memory, but something I, I always go back to is. We, uh, you know, when, when I was a little kid, um, the producers still mostly had sows outside and they would raise the, the growing pigs in confinement. But the sows, after they got weaned, they would get kicked out out to dirt lots and we'd run boars with them and the boars would do the breeding. And then, you know, three months later, we'd come back in and see the ones which had underlines develop and move those to farrowing again. And that was always quite an exercise to get those sows marked that had full udders and then get them sorted off from everybody else in the lot and then get them onto a gooseneck and, and um, into, into farrowing crates. And as you can imagine, they were half wild. So it was, it was exciting. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I can remember one time uh, the sow was standing uh, to the side of a wallow and I had to sort her off. And I can't remember if she was going in or not going in, but I had to sort her off. And it was muddy and I say muddy, right? But you kind of get where yeah. This and she, <laughs> she went left and, and I went left and she went right and I went right and I was I was fairly athletic as a young man so I thought I could do lots of stuff and man she juked me and I went sideways in midair and I landed in the middle of that wallow and I mean landed in it sideways and completely uh. all the way down and when I came up out of that thing there was a, a guy I worked with named Chuck Stevenson. And he was howling, laughing. I mean, just <laughs> howling, doubled over. And I walked uh, directly to, I, I could drive at that point because I can remember I had, a, I had a pickup truck there and I walked directly to my pickup truck. I stripped down completely naked and I drove home um, completely covered in, uh, in <laughs> salmonure. Um, so uh, I very, I go back to that story whenever I'm having a bad day and thinking about, man, I got it rough right now because I can assure you taking care of those critters outside was a heck of a lot worse than it is taking care of them inside. That's awesome. That's a funny story. Absolutely. Cause I, I have some fun. It's a good one. <laughs> I, got I got some fun. I got one uh, really good one. If you got time for story time. I yeah, no, go ahead. What's up? All right. So another good story I got Aaron Lauer and I, one of my partners here at Carthage, 
uh, we did a wheat cropsy project in Nebraska when we were vet students. So um, we went out to Nebraska for an entire summer, necropsied uh, uh, finishing mortalities to try and find the cause of death. And so we would drive from finisher to finisher all day, all summer, and just necropsy every dead pig they had. And uh, they rendered in this particular system. And so we would necropsy the pigs right by the, the rendering trash can, so to say. And then we would throw the, the necropsy mortalities in the trash can when we were done. And um, we were doing this one day at a very large finishing site. And so they had several mortalities to cut up. And the rendering truck pulled up while we were there. And of course, they kind of knew we were doing something because all of a sudden, all the pigs they picked up now were butchered, right? You know, we had, we had necropsied all of them. So they, we weren't surprised that he somewhat expected us. And this rendering truck driver gets out of his truck and he kind of walks around to the side of the truck while we're cutting up these dead pigs. And it's 100 degrees, horrible, horrible <laughs> weather. Again, outside, miserable to be cutting up, you know, pigs and just swimming in pig goo. And the rendering truck driver is, as you would expect, a rendering truck driver would look from north central Nebraska. We were north of Albion, Nebraska. <laughs> and I mean, this guy was probably 55, 60 years old, grizzled. Um, looked like he hadn't shaved in a couple of weeks. Uh, it had he had I can still remember he had the chew stain down the side of his face. Oh no! Not the actual <laughs> chew itself, but like the stain because he chewed so much. And so this guy gets out and he's rendering truck driver. He walks to the back of the truck and he goes, "You boys, the ones that are cutting up all these dead pigs all summer?" And we looked at him and said, "Yeah." He said, "Huh? How much are they paying you to do that?" And Aaron and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, well, sir, we aren't getting paid. We're just volunteering. We're vet students. And this is a way for us to learn how to do necrops. He looks at us again and he goes, huh, you two must be the dumbest sons of bitches alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's another one. Anytime you're having a bad day, when the rendering truck driver in north central Nebraska tells you your job sucks, that <laughs> probably means you need to rethink what you're doing at that point. That's should, funny. Should have led with that story. That one's definitely the best. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So to lead into some some of the topic here today on sound mortality, uh, I'll lead off with why is sound mortality such a common topic of discussion on farms, at industry meetings, and in industry media publications? I think it's because nobody can clearly and concisely explain what's going on with it what's going to happen with it in the future, what causes the increases in sound mortality that we're having, and how are we going to make it better? Um, you know, it's one of those things where you, at an industry meeting, it's easy to ask somebody, what do you think about this? Because none of us have the silver bullet. Um, yeah. And none of us really even know, you know, perfectly what target we should try to shoot at if we found the silver bullet. So to me, it's kind of like one of those things where until we find some solutions that are a little little easier to communicate than what we have today, it's going to continue to be a, a topic of discussion because, you know, you chat with every you chat with lots of smart people and none of them seem to have, um, you know, a very uh, educated um, uh, stance on industry wide. What are we going to do to make it better? Yeah, it's so difficult. And a fun little example is every now and then I'll, I'll have a producer who really, really believes that what we're doing is helping with sound mortality. But my response is more like, that's awesome to hear. But like, I don't dare go and try to claim an impact on sound mortality because as an industry, we know mortality is the problem, but we don't understand the essence of the problem. Yep. And if we don't understand the essence of the problem, how can we actually be confident that we've come up with a solution? 
and, yeah. and it feels difficult with sound mortality. Is that is that really the world we live in where until we can truly understand the essence of the problem, it's really difficult to understand if the solution truly is valid? Very well said. The only thing I would add to that is I think it's problems, plural. Um, I don't think it's one specific issue that is causing yeah. an increase in, in sound mortality. I think it is multiple different diseases, conditions, processes that, that are all playing together. And, and collectively, they're, well, they're all getting worse individually, which leads to us collectively getting some sound mortality numbers that are, uh, I mean, downright embarrassing, to be honest with you. When sound mortality is higher than the growing pig mortality, you got to yeah. take a hard look at that and say, what is going on here? Yeah, it's, it's not the story we want to be told. I mean, those are the individuals that are getting the most, should be getting the most care over the course of their life. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a problem. What are the different causes of sound mortality and why do you think they're all going up together? Yeah. So um, in our record systems, as, as you know, Matthew, we often try to code a reason for sound mortality. Um, if, you know, we're working on a farm together and we have to enter in a sow is dead, typically, no matter what record system you use, it's going to ask you for some sort of a reason code. Um, and it, you get a million different reason codes out there. We all kind of customize that and put our own our own designation. You know, some people may just put prolapse. Other people may differentiate between rectal prolapse and uterine prolapses. And there's no lack of creativity with the names for reasons, is there? Oh, I mean, you'll see, not unusual to see 40 different names listed as an option. And that really gets complicated at a system level when you're looking at multiple farms together, because if you got 40 different options, you know, farms are going to kind of pick their top five and use the top five, but Cedar Ridge may not use the same top five as Cedar Plains, you know what I'm saying? And they could yeah. be having the same condition, but they're calling it very different things. So we uh, we really struggle to categorize it. I would tell you, you know, big picture, when I necropsy sows on farm, when I'm involved with actual sow mortalities, you know, lameness is obviously something that's a, a big challenge and, and we hear come up repeatedly. I mentioned the prolapses, that's a, that's a, a big common occurrence. Um, downers, kind of a little bit different than a lameness, uh, more of like a septicemia in animals that, that aren't chronically lame, they just all of a sudden go down on you and they can't get up at all. Um, and then probably the, the most accurate reason code that we use is unknown. Um, you see, you, you still see that as the, the leader, unknown or sudden dead. Um, and I had somebody tell me once in vet school, you know, there's no such thing as sudden death. You may not have predicted the death, but there's no such thing as sudden death, right? It was yeah. all coming and could have been predicted. And I think that lends to what you said about not knowing the essence of the problem until we can predict it pretty hard to manage it. So what are some producers, farm managers, teams, veterinarians, what are you guys all trying to do to intervene? I think um, some kind of common strategies I see employed on the lameness, you see a lot of people putting emphasis on the quality of guilt selection. Um, the industry went through such a crazy growth spurt, um, you know, 2014, 15, 16, 17. Um, there was a lot of pressure on the overall guilt supply. Um, the industry is not in a growth spurt right now. Um, you know, in, in interest rates and construction costs have kind of constrained anybody's appetite for growth, it seems like. And that's allowed us to put a little more selection intensity on our, on our guilt selection. Um, uh, and I would say uh, a real emphasis on reducing turnover from a labor perspective has also helped sustain some of those guilt selection efforts, meaning that it's not somebody new who's selecting the guilts every three months. We just have to retrain, retrain, retrain. 
we're, we've really focused on retention as an industry and we've seen the overall retention improve. So the employee we spent time with training on guilt selection, we're seeing them there three months later, six months later, and a year later, and obviously they're getting better. Um, with that with that selection for gilts and trying to help with the lameness also comes the, uh, uh, I think, the education of the farm and connecting the dots. That here's why the selection is so important. That yeah. female is the future of your farm. And if you don't catch that lameness now, you're going to have to drag her out of the farm as a mortality, unfortunately. And so connecting those dots helps a lot. Future state, um, I think you're going to see technology help us, Matthew. Um, we need smart folks such as yourself to develop camera systems, algorithms. Um, they're, they're, we can probably train cameras to do a better job than any of us as individuals can to select gilts. And the cameras can watch those gilts all day long. So they can catch things that we don't see just because they're watching the gilts more often. So I think future state um, leveraging cameras to help with that gilt selection process is definitely an opportunity. On yeah, the yeah, PIC, I mean, at Iowa Pork, they had that computer vision system out showing the video for selection. That, that's going to be a big deal because retention of knowledge on selection in itself and the variation that happens between person to person, that's it's going to be a thing of the past, isn't it? Well, I, I think um, it can be if we choose can to adopt be. it. Um, as, as you know, uh, the pig industry is not always the most rapid at adopting new technologies. And there will absolutely be skeptics. Um, I can assure you, everybody who has a lot of pride in selecting <laughs> gilts is going to be 100% sure that they're better than that camera. And they're going to look to demonstrate to you. So, I mean, there, there, there's opportunity, I would say. There's opportunity for us to, um, even if you don't improve that process, to standardize that process. And who knows? Maybe we find that, you know, we use these cameras, we select the best possible gilts, and we don't change lameness at all. Maybe that tells us that that shot on goal wasn't as valuable as what we think it is. But today good we point. think it's valuable, so today we spend time on it. That's fair. Good point. I would say the other, um, you know, one of the other areas that we put a lot of emphasis on is certainly the prolapses. Um, some basic things there, you know, just making sure that your selection criteria includes something in there for the perennial score. Um, you know, we've learned that the that that score is predictive of future prolapses and make sure that if you're making your own replacement gilts, that you're not breeding anything that's got a perennial score of three. Um, we certainly don't want to do that. Um, recognition that, that the prolapses, you know, do have some genetic uh, contribution, that there is some uh, hereditary components to it um, and making smart decisions on including that information in our, our gilt indexes, I think, is is helpful. Um, the last one I would mention, Matthew, in terms of where we try to make progress is um, good old fashioned chores and animal husbandry still does matter. And I give yeah. Chris Rodemaker a lot of credit for demonstrating that in a case study where he took some interns and basically went into a sow farm not very far away from him, their names. And they went in for several weeks and they just did gestation walks. And, you know, every time they dropped feed, they got behind there and they did a quick observation of each animal and they treated the ones that were sick. And shockingly yeah. enough, they were able to move the needle. And I wouldn't say that it went to zero, right? They didn't make sound mortality the 2% that it was 25 years ago, but they were able to knock a percent or two off of it, if I understand it. And certainly that's got value. Yeah, I think with all the technologies coming, the one thing that, that I've been really a big proponent of is technologies are going to help us identify issues. But they're not going to go in and solve the problem for us. We still need no. the husbandry and the um, the focus of our teams to go in there and actually act in a way that's consistent and in a way that can be 
like we measured and looked on. And uh, I think we're getting a lot of these systems. We've had them for a long time, but yep. it's difficult without a way of, of really getting into the nitty gritty on is it working? Is it not? It's just it's difficult. Well, think about um, our industry is labor constrained and not that we're terribly unique there, but we're labor yeah. constrained, right? You hear it all the time. I'm sure you heard it at Iowa pork like crazy, right? Labor, labor, labor. And yet what's the first thing that we ask our labor to do? Look at every animal. And sometimes we ask them to do it multiple times a day. Look at all of them, right? Look at 100% of them because 1% or 2% of them might be sick. Think about that for a second, right? Just what you're saying. If we can use technology to identify the small percentage of animals that are not having a good day today, and then we can have our people go directly to those animals and spend time with them to understand why are they not having a good day? And what do I need to do as the caretaker to give them a better day, right? Yeah. Our animals are never going to be like the human health model where they call and say, I want to come to the doctor, right? Yeah, they can't They can't hit their own push cord. <laughs> and, and they're prey animals. So even worse, they try to hide it. When you, or I, when you and I are in the barn, good point. Right, they understand where our eyeballs are and we're the big bad wolf. And by definition, a prey animal, if I was a little bit lame, I'm going to look pretty speedy when I see the big bad wolf, right? I don't want the big bad wolf to recognize that I'm lame and slow because I know you're going to come get me. And they get that. And so they try to hide it from us. And that's where I think, you know, um, whether it's the, the in-barn sensors, um, you know, that, that measure um, anything and everything from like the cough sensors uh, to, you know, water meters, water meters uh, that, are, that have Bluetooth capabilities and can give you real accurate feedback. I think there's a lot of opportunities, the cameras, right? Just to just to measure the laying pattern. If an animal doesn't yep. get up in 24 hours, that's a problem, right? Yep. And the more we can use those technologies to hone in on, these are the animals to go look at. To your point, we don't necessarily need to tell the caretakers exactly what to do. We train them. We expect them to make yes. those decisions today. If we can just eliminate all the time that they spend looking for which animals to spend time on, that is the biggest labor savings we could ever give back to a farm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's... Uh... When we think about all the time that goes into finding those sick animals and all the disruption to those that are healthy, we never talk about that. The disruption to every animal that's healthy, even a sow farm, and this could be controversial and that's okay. It's a point of this, right? I might say something that I don't even 100% believe in, but uh, yep. we get sows up every day. Yep. Try to help with feed intake. Do we really need to be getting up every sow or do we just need to focus on the sows that within the last 12, 24 hours actually need intervention? Are we actually potentially creating more dysfunction on getting sows up that maybe we're just up 30 minutes ago and then we're in a lactation bout? And so you, you never know. And I think we're learning so much as an industry and the labor and, and future of our sow farms, the people in the farms, they're going to have access to resources that nobody is used to. And I think that's exciting, but scary all at the same time. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for us. Um, it's one that I think we have to embrace and one I think the industry will. The labor situation, if nothing else, will drive us to embracing it. An example I, I often use um, on lameness and growing pigs, kind of what we're talking about is you get up, uh, you know, recently weaned pigs and you get them up to go run them around the pen and see if any of them are sick and need treatment or, you know, fallbacks and whatnot. How many times, Matthew, have you seen one of those recently weaned pigs going Mach 9 across the slatted floor and that back leg or that front leg catches in one of the slats, right? And yep. they're going 40 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden the body's still going 40 miles an hour, but that leg is planted, right? And they, the torque that happens on their limb got to cause some traumatic injuries. 
Um, so I think, you know, if we can identify, if we can come up with ways to identify pigs without having the big, bad, big, bad wolf in the pen, scaring the prey animals, that will have a lot of value on preventing those injuries, whether that's sows or growing pigs. And the, the other, the other connection I always make to that is, you know, the next day, what's happening to that pig that got its leg torqued in the, in the slats. Well, that care, same caretaker is probably picking them up the next day and giving them an antibiotic because they're lame. Now they're not lame from an from a bacterial reason at all, right? They're lame yeah. from traumatic lameness, but we don't have a way to differentiate that at all at the farm level. So if they're lame, we tell them to treat them. You know, it's the classic: if you only have a if you only have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, and that's really all we have to manage it is is our is our medication. And even from a data standpoint in the sow farm, when we look at sow mortality, you have medical and non-medical intervention. Non-medical maybe being body condition, off feed events, get her up and walk around because she's constipated. We, as an industry, don't really know anything about the non-medical intervention, right? We know about the medical intervention, but when it comes to non-medical intervention and how did that proceed or follow medical intervention, so I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's going to be exciting to see where it goes. But with sound mortality, what is the cost of that um, to producers? Oh, man, that's a really difficult question. Or what's the impact, production impact, we'll say? Um, it depends is always the answer. The, the <laughs> challenge is it, it's variable. That's probably the best way to describe it. Each, each individual has a different production impact. The, uh, you know, the, the two time return that's open and in the opportunity row when she's in mortality, you know, the loss of that animal is probably the meat value. It's the coal value of that animal. That's fairly easy to calculate. But the sow that uh, has to be euthanized um, two days prior to farrowing because she's a downer or the sow that prolapses in the middle of a farrowing event, you, you lose all of those piglets. You have a tremendous amount of, of sunk cost in that animal at that point and a huge loss of opportunity cost. Right. You know, yeah. let's the, the sow that's getting ready to farrow a litter of, of well, let's just say she's going to wean a litter of 12 round numbers. Right. If those pigs are worth 50 bucks. You've got, uh, let's see, you, you know, you've got, you get a little bit of money in feed, obviously, to get the sow through lactation. So maybe she's going to eat 300 pounds of feed in lactation, something like that, you know, so you're going to spend some money on feed, uh, maybe a little bit of money in labor with the piglets in the farrowing house, but that's the only amount of money you have to spend to get those pigs to weaning. And that's five, $600 worth of pigs to get to weaning. So that's a lot. And then you've got the meat value of the sow on top of all that. So, I mean, it can, on a, on a multiplier farm, a dead, a dead sow can theoretically be worth a thousand bucks. Um, uh, on a, uh, on a, in another situation entirely, a dead sow could be worth 50 bucks if she was, you know, a, a body condition score one that was going to be a boner, um, at the, at the coal buying plant. So yeah, it, it's a huge variation. And, and I would tell you, that's another piece that people I think find very confusing, Matthew, is like, what is the cost? You know, how does it impact financially? It's terribly difficult to estimate that. Yeah, what pigs are what what sows are you saving? And if if yeah, and if all of that other stuff is still ambiguous, it's it's difficult. How do you project sow mortality to change in the coming months and years? Uh, do you think it's going to get better or worse? And why? Well, I I would tell you that um, there are some repeatable trends that we can look at. Um, past past performance is not a guarantee of future, but um, one thing that it does seem very consistent is the seasonality of sow mortality. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, Matthew, incorrectly assume that we lose the most sows this time of year because this is our peak disease season. 
right? We were joking before about, oh, it's January and how are things going? Relative, right? There's a lot of birds moving around, a lot of flu, you know, a lot of disease challenges. But we see the peak of sow mortality as an industry every year in the heat of the summer. When we have the first just wicked heat wave, we are going to lose sows. Um, and and that that is repeatable year after year that typically kind of July, maybe June, maybe August, but somewhere in one of those three months, you're going to peak in sow mortality for the year. And it generally has nothing to do with infectious disease. The infectious disease level is probably at its lower lowest pressure at that time of year. It's everything to do with heat stress um, and, and asking those animals to farrow, particularly the due to farrow sows to do that in extremely hot, extremely humid conditions. So it's the most expensive sows that are dying because of the heat in the summer. Absolutely. That's very, very, very well said. Um, gotcha. It's the most sows and, and it's the most expensive ones, unfortunately, that are predisposed to dying in that time frame. Um, you know, year, year over year, I think, uh, unfortunately, there's there's really no slowing in the trend of increasing mortality. Um when I graduated from vet school 15 years ago, I was taught that 6% is kind of an intervention level. At 6% sow mortality, if you're higher than that, you really need to get in there and work on that because you shouldn't be. And you talk to producers that uh, maybe go back you know, another decade before that, they would tell you that you know 2 to 4% was a very reasonable number. Um, and in other countries, in some other countries, they still see that kind of 2 to 4% number for sow mortality. Uh, unfortunately, in the U.S., we're at a point where, you know, 14% is not terribly uncommon. And you've got herds for sure that do 20% sow mortality. And Which, until yeah. we plateau that number, it's hard to hard to say it's going to do anything other than keep inching up. Which even just from 10, 15 years ago, like that's that's just so high comparatively. Uh, more, than, more than double, right? Yeah. Where we are. And we're, we're at a point now where I think we have to look at ourselves and say it's not sustainable. Um, at a certain point, you have to uh, not ignore the economics. I get that. But at a certain point, you have to look at this and say, there's a bit of an ante to the poker game kind of discussion here. We, we can't have 15 to 20% of our, our sows die. Um, that's not a sustainable path going forward. And we're going to have to get that at minimum slowed down and ideally gain some ground back. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you talking about sound mortality and kind of dig into that a bit today. I have some fun rapid fire questions I'll throw your way and uh, we'll see what we come up with here. Very good. Uh, for, the first one is what D1 college do you root for? Oh, I'm an Illini. ILL, INI, baby. <laughs> what is your go to karaoke song? Oh, I do not have one. <laughs> I am horrible at karaoke. Um, oh, but if you force me to pick, I would probably um, I would go with uh, uh, Turnpike Troubadours, something from from their catalog, um, or I would go super old school and like uh, Waylon Jenning, Mama Tried. I, I would I would belt that out in the right situation. <laughs> gotcha. That's good to know. Uh, what actor is your favorite or actress? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, or do you have one you just can't stand? I would say none that I really can't stand. Um, I really like the uh, uh, the Marvel um, movies. Um, I've enjoyed those on on long plane trips. They help the plane trips go by faster. They do. Um, 
And so uh, I think uh, the guy who plays Thor, Chris uh, Hemsworth, Helmsworth? Hemsworth, yeah, yeah, he he's always entertaining. He's uh, he's good in the action scenes, but he's also funny. Uh, he has some good one-liners, so I'll go with him. I feel like in that series, Drax is probably one of the ones I just I, I'm always laughing about. That guy, that uh, he's the, very entertaining. Chris uh, Chris Pratt does an awesome job too when the he uh, does uh, Guardians of the Galaxies come in. Chris Pratt's pretty hilarious too. I I like comedy a lot, and um, going back to his days on uh, oh shoot, what's the name of the show? Um, oh, Parks and Rec. Yeah, Parks and Rec. Yeah, uh, Leslie Note. Man, Chris Pratt was amazing on that show. <laughs> And uh, last question here. What is your uh, go-to light beer? Oh, um, as my friend Brandon Witt says, does this look like a light beer body to you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Bush Latte guy. I'll definitely go with Bush Lattes. But in general, I'm typically uh, more on the full calorie program if I'm drinking beer. Fair, fair. Well, to round everything up, I like to ask for a golden nugget, a bit of wisdom that you have from your career that you'd like to pass on to, to others. You know, we talked about sound mortality, and so uh, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, and the golden nugget that I have is the same as everybody's golden nugget, right? There are no new ideas, just great things that we learn from other people. And I was struggling with sound mortality at a sal- one particular south farm one time. Um, and, uh, I was working with, uh, James Flume on our team at Carthage. James is a production manager here at Carthage. He's got a lot of experience and, um, you know, he kind of grabbed me at this farm one day and he's like, Hey man, I got the thing figured out. I know, I know what the problem is. What? Well, I'm thinking he's thinking it's going to be some disease or, you know, circle virus. I don't know. And he's like, they're hot. And, um, I had worked with this farm for a couple of years and I'd been through a couple of summers and it was definitely just an exacerbated what we talked about before with summer mortality was really bad. And he grabbed me and he took me into a farrowing room and he's like, just, just walk through here with me. And it was a farrowing room that had yet to farrow. So the sows had just been loaded, uh, but they hadn't farrowed yet, which is the worst time for heat stress. And I bet 20 to 30% of those sows were panting. Mm. And, you know, he kind of, he, he forced me to slow down enough to see that and appreciate that. And, and as we talked, I just, you know, kind of mentally went through the exercise of, all right, these sows are going to lay here and pant until they farrow. And if you haven't ever panted, just try to breathe that hard for about 30 seconds, right? It's exhausting. Yeah. You're using your diaphragm. You're using a bunch of muscles in your abdomen that you don't normally use, and you're tired. And so those sows are exhausted when they start farrowing because they're panting. They're absolutely exhausted. And imagine trying to run a marathon, which is farrowing, right? They're going to give birth to 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 pigs. Yeah. Um, Imagine trying to do that after you've been panting for hours and hours and hours, right? I mean, it was like the biggest head slap, duh moment I have ever seen. And he and I immediately shifted away from my crazy diagnostic plan and, you know, my plan to get the caretakers all educated on how to treat sows better. Um, And we just shifted over to how are we going to cool these animals down? Um, And there's no secrets with that. Your your options are water and air. And using those two things in combination to either cool the air with something like cool cells or to um, allow evaporative cooling of the animal with drippers or something like that. But we we basically just went to a, a big box store and we bought a bunch of box stands, fans, and we used the totes that we used for day one care. We, we grabbed a bunch of those and we took a needle and just poked holes in the bottom of them. And we basically made drippers. So the, those, those uh, totes, we filled them up with water and they drip water onto the sow. We'd set them on top of the crate. 
And then we grab the box fans, just like a 24 inch fan, like you'd have at your house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And we unplug the heat lamp and plug them directly into the heat lamp cord. And we turn that box fan also on top of the crate, just blowing straight down on those sows. And so creating that dripping system, I can't tell you how many hundreds of sows we probably saved at that farm just with that very simple, very easy approach. Didn't need any diagnostic dollars, really didn't need a veterinarian involved at all, right? That's just good old fashioned animal husbandry. And so I would just share that with any producers that are out there. If you have a, a seasonal problem with your Dutafero sows and you feel like there's one farm that's worse than others or your farm is kind of highly predisposed to that, just, you know, my golden nugget is it doesn't always have to be the new fancy disease or the thing everybody's talking about. Go back to the basics. And yep. until you've got that heat stress under control, doesn't matter what you do with your vaccine program or your medication program or anything else. Got to get that fixed before you can really hope to make it make it better. And, and like you said, you don't need fancy technology. You don't need all these things. You, you can go get a tub, poke some holes, run some water, get a box fan. Water and air. That's, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how hot it is. When you step out of the shower, it's cool, right? And that's the same thing that we want to try and have happen for these animals. Well, thank you, Clayton, for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. 